Hey everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update for episode 95. Got a bunch of stuff in the mailbag this week that should be kind of take us on a wild ride here. Uh, first, I think we'll be talking about uh, wood for exterior windows and doors, specifically focusing on cypress and possible alternatives to it. I want to talk about curing wood with heat. Well, heat and oil. That should be interesting. And then I've got a couple of questions about really, 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 really old wood. How it stands up and what kind of durability, what kind of, what happens to the things we make out of the really, really old wood. Should be fun. Let's dive in. So as usual, uh, thank you guys for this um, diverse basket of questions. Um, please keep sending in those questions. You can go to lumberupdate.com. There is a contact form there, or you can just email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. I also had quite a few questions come in through Instagram at lumberupdate as well. So thanks for uh, sending in all those questions. And thank you to those of you who continue to support and sponsor the show over at patreon.com slash lumberupdate. Always appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit of industry news. Um, I don't know how industry news this is, but it's tree news, and we talk about all things trees around here. Um, the Chissos Canyon Oak, or Quercus tardifolia, has been found. It's long been considered or thought to be extinct, and uh, they found it in a canyon in Texas. I uh, found one example of it, and I kind of enjoyed reading this story because um, it was a, a team of arborists and botanists uh, from, oh, I want to say it's the Morton Arboretum. Um, yeah, the Morton Arboretum. They were out in the canyon because they they were wondering, is, is there a possibility that this tree is out there? I don't know if they got a tip or they thought maybe the conditions were just right for it. And they were digging around and they found it. And um, the, the way the story is written, this is like tree nerdery on a new level. Like this, I mad respect to this. <laughs> you guys know the level of nerdery that I espouse on this show. Just the excitement and the fascination over finding this tree and what it means and what can be done to possibly um, uh, propagate the species. And it was interesting because I, I learned, I never really dug into this before, but oaks are particularly difficult from a conservation perspective, because the acorn, its seed, the acorn can't be stored in like a traditional seed bank. They have to be propagated in the wild. Um, cool fact, useless fact maybe, but one of those fun cocktail facts that I thought was kind of neat to hear, but it also kind of underscores the importance of um, managing the forest and specifically paying attention to the diversity of a particular genus. Oak is such a widespread genus and there's so many different species. You may look at it and think, well, that's a red oak or that's a white oak, but it might actually be a chestnut oak or a bog oak or a swamp oak or, a, you know, God, any number of other oaks that are floating around a bur oak. I don't know why a black oak. I could keep going. Um, but every now and then there might be this, this particular species that really due to whether it's climate change, whether it's due to uh, development and kind of infringement on natural areas, the natural soil chemistry, the natural area that that particular species loves has become threatened. And here is an example of one. The story is really fascinating on what some of their plans are to, to propagate it and try to uh, bolster the health of this one species they found because it was looking a little bit sickly. But anyway, this was just one of those, it made me feel good about my own nerdery because these guys take it to the next level. <laughs> very, very cool story. Uh, the next one was a farmer in uh, Australia who has planted 
his own forest. And now he's kind of having the last laugh because as the price of lumber has gone up dramatically in Australia, we've talked in the past about logging bans in Australia. This is a guy that has his own private land and he has essentially grown a plantation forest and continues to manage his forest as cropland. And now he's taking advantage of it some 40 years later. It's a really cool story um, about uh, this this gentleman that just had the foresight to uh, plant his land, his cropland, with trees. But then he also discovered that he was able to um, improve his current land. He's a, a sheep farmer, I believe. Yeah, sheep farmer. And he's been able to uh, dramatically increase the quality of his sheep grazing land by planting trees, not only to prevent erosion, but also just the biodiversity that comes from that, what trees can do to make better grazing land. Pasture land doesn't have to be wide open areas, especially for smaller animals like sheep. So it wasn't just a matter of cordon off this land, plant a bunch of trees and then like manage it, but don't touch it and don't make any profit off of it for 40 years, because that is a very hard proposition to swallow. Instead, he used the planting of the trees to improve his already existing business, sheep farming, and saw benefits to his primary business while being able to grow this forest. Well, now he's got a sawmill. He's starting to harvest these. He's using several different silvicultural methods to manage his land. And it's just a really, really cool story that kind of ties into, if I can use a woodworking um, expression, dovetails into Let's just, let's go over, or let's go off the deep end. It's just not your run-of-the-mill story. It's not quite as cut and dried as you might expect, but it dovetails nicely into all the stories I've been talking about urban logging and kind of grassroots logging efforts and how that could actually flip the script on the global lumber industry. Here's a gentleman who has started managing his land as a forester, and he is now able to produce lumber on a continent that has all but banned logging. Um, very, very cool, very interesting to see how this continue develops now that he's gotten a little bit of press. Uh, he's, some of his neighbors have started jumping on the bandwagon as well. So this, you know, his success is, is contagious and this is what we need to continue to foster that grassroots logging idea. So a couple of people sent me that story. So thank you, uh, you know who you are, who sent that in, I appreciate that. Let's look at a little bit of feedback. I've had some really, uh, really good feedback on the last couple of episodes. David wrote in and said in episode 93, you mentioned North American oak or North American red oak as Quercus rober and a distinction between North American and European red oak. I was under the impression that both are Quercus rubra, just grown in different places. Quercus rober and Quercus petrea are the two prevalent oaks here in Germany. So um, first things first, I, if I said that, I'm sorry, you're right. I, I must have misspoken. It is Quercus rubra, red oak. Um, Quercus rober is mostly, you could call it English oak. You could call it European oak. You could call it French oak. Uh, European oaks and English oaks pretty much all fall under the Quercus rober um, species. There are a few other ones, like he mentions Quercus petrea. Um they tend to be similar to Quercus rober, European oak, I should say, tend to be similar to North American white oak. North American red oak is actually quite distinctive for um, 
North America. Um, it's wide open pores. It's kind of shorter medullary rays. The fact that it doesn't have tylose in the pores, making it not a very good exterior species. That Quercus rubra actually isn't found um, much outside of North America. Uh, there's southern red oak, but that's actually a Quercus falcata, which is in southern North America, but also Central America. Um, I think might be in South America. I'm not exactly sure on that. But that is that is in the red oak group, which plays into kind of the second part of David's question. He says, speaking of which, in lumber terms, does white oak refer to Quercus alba or the whole section Quercus in the Quercus genus subgenus? Um, white oak does refer to a specific species, Quercus alba. The genus Quercus, all the oaks roll up under the Quercus, whether it's red oak, white oak, bog oak, you know, black oak, swamp oak, chestnut oak. Here I go again. Um, white oak, however, um, white oak and red oak, they often uh, are referred to as the red oak group and the white oak group, simply because the difference between, and here again, Quercus rubra, North American red oak, and North American white oak, Quercus alba, those two are distinctly different. They're both oaks, but you know, red oak has much bigger pores, as I said earlier, kind of shorter medullary rays, but really fat medullary rays and wide open pores. They're both ring pores, but white oak has slightly smaller pores. They are stuffed full of that crystalline tylose substance, which is what makes them so good for exterior purposes because it's like silicone caulk inside the pores themselves. And the, the medullary rays are quite a bit shorter and thinner. It's a much finer grain species, often referred to as kind of a higher quality cabinet grade. There are some minimal technical specification differences. For the most part, white oak tends to be a little bit denser, a little bit harder than red oak. Um, due to its kind of more homogenized structure, it tends to just behave a little bit better. Um, it's not nearly as difficult and splintery to work as red oak, which is why red oak often gets kind of lumped into lower end furniture construction or cabinetry, like more, more of the, the big box type cabinetry type stuff. Uh, white oak gets used for doors and windows because it's just a, it, it holds details a little bit better. It's just, for lack of a better term, a finer species. Um, so all of the woods that are similar to white oak get lumped into the white oak group and vice versa into the red oak group, the woods that are similar as far as pore structure, lack of tylose, they all fall under red oak. There is actually a pretty good article on uh, the wood database about distinguishing the difference between red and white oak. And it goes into a lot of those details. My favorite has always been the straw test. You stick up, you know, a piece of red oak into a bowl of water, blow on one end, you get bubbles at the other end, blow on one end of a white oak stick, and you won't get bubbles on the other end because of that tylose. But it does break up the red oak group and the white oak group. Red oak group being, of course, red oak, black oak, um, California black oak, cherry bark oak, laurel oak, pit oak, scarlet oak, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. White oak being, you know, burr oak, chestnut oak, English oak, Quercus rover, also um, French oak, European oak, uh, Oregon white oak, uh, overcup oak, post oak, et cetera. The chestnut oak actually falls under that. Those all have those similar um, ray pore structure to white oak. So I can, I can see kind of where the confusion comes from, David. White oak is a species, but it also is kind of a, a grouping of oaks that have those similar properties. But what's interesting, the difference between Quercus rubra and Quercus rober, and it's it's no surprise that I misspoke in that episode, um, they often get to be kind of interchangeable and the marketing that comes around oak in general, 
plays a lot into regional variations. Because oak is so widespread, it's pretty much found everywhere in the world, but there may be a bunch of different species that are kind of hard to distinguish, which is where that red oak group, white oak group comes from, because all of the species in those groups kind of sort of, they're kind of hard to tell apart. They do kind of look the same and act the same, so they just kind of get lumped under red oak. Well, in Europe, where you do, I think, have a slightly more diverse species sampling, um, they all get listed as French oak or European oak or English oak or brown oak. Um, fun fact, brown oak is actually Quercus rover, but it actually has a fungus that has stained the wood to give it that deeper brown color. A lot of people confuse English oak with brown oak and think that all English oak has that brown color. And no, it's actually a, a fungal infection. English oak is actually Quercus rover. The difference, however, you will, uh, let me rephrase that. There is a difference, however, between English oak and French oak and German oak. Um, there's also a term for royal oak, which really has no botanical meaning behind it. Again, it's Quercus rover. But due to that widespread geographic distribution and the soil chemistry, go back to our episode on soil chemistry somewhere, somewhere back in the 50s, I think. And you'll, we talk about how, um, the same species of tree growing on one side of the hill to the other side of the hill can behave and look very, very differently. Not to mention a tree growing in like the Loire, the Loire River, gosh, that's hard to say, the Loire River Valley versus the Po River Valley versus the Thames River Valley versus, I'm running out of rivers, versus Wales, versus Scotland, versus, you know, Germany uh, versus Poland. There's dramatic soil differences. There's dramatic um, uh, water salinity, not salinity, alkaline levels, um, rainfall levels, all of those things, all of the chem the chemicals, the metal, the metals, the minerals, and things like that in the soil are going to change things. So French oak, and this is usually coming from like wine growing regions. Um, and French oak often is referred to, especially in the reclaim space, as oak that's been used for wine barrels. You know, so it's stained and it's got all kinds of extra, you know, goodness to it. Go back to the reclaimed episode and talk about tank wood and things like that. That same kind of idea. But French oak tends to be denser because one of the reasons it's the wine growing region is the rainfall and the soil chemistry is such that it pr promotes a much denser growth of Quercus rober. Um, so you get a slightly darker, brownish, more consistent grained, tighter grained oak than like a North American white oak, let alone a North American red oak. English oak, on the other hand, similar due to the higher rainfall in Great Britain, you are going to get a, um, a hardier tree, a tree that can grow a little bit denser but in other areas, certain parts of England, you get a tree that grows quite dense, but also quite fast due to the high rainfall. So you may actually have wider spaced growth rings um, because it's growing fast, but the density is still quite a bit higher. The meat in between those growth rings is, is well nourished, put it that way, well watered. So English oak has kind of a distinctly different look than French oak. Um, than North American white oak. So even though it's all the same species, you can't just dismiss those regional names as marketing. Some of it's marketing, let's not lie, but there is there is some difference. Like when you pick up the board and you look at it, let alone when you work it, you will find some differences there, which I find just cool, just fascinating. The flooring industry has really played this up with French oak floors and English oak floors. I actually have seen German oak floors. Um, 
you know, just there's that, that exoticness, you know, for those of us in North America, because when I'm talking flooring industry, I am mostly referring to the North American flooring industry because it's enormous. But, you know, for some guy in the Hamptons of New York to say, I have French oak flooring, ooh la la, you know, that's marketing. Um, is it really French oak? We've actually imported some French oak for a couple of high-end projects and I've had a chance to play around with it. It is definitely, it definitely works differently than my North American white oak, my Quercus Alba. So just something to think about. So anyway, that was a, a long response to uh, David calling me out on a mispronunciation or a misquoting uh, of a species there. But uh, thank you, David, because that's a... Uh, it's a cool topic to talk about. Oak is fascinating because there's so many variations of it. Um, I want to say thank you to everybody who's been writing in about the Shawshank Oak case. Uh, I've got more emails than I can possibly listen to or, or respond to. Uh, for the most part, uh, it's pretty much all you know the same same theme and variation. So I'm not really going to go into it a lot more, other than to say I did get a link to uh, the county um, uh, uh, court. Uh, database where you can actually pay attention to what's happening with that case. Right now, it's in that kind of very long legal process where a hearing was called. And during the hearing, they decided to have another hearing. And that was set for like a month from now. Um, so the next time something happens, I think, is the end of March as I'm recording this. And that was even more of a preliminary hearing. So I think it's going to be some time before we get any resolution on this. So I'm going to kind of put it to bed for now and just kind of monitor that in the background. I'll chime back in once there's been something that happens. But uh, I think for now, I'm going to leave that story because there's a lot of people writing in. I appreciate it, but let's not beat that dead horse until we've got more to talk about. Um, but this was a slightly different bent on the Shawshank Oak. It was more of inspired by it. Darren wrote in and said, thanks for the recent Shawshank Oak topics. Um, I appreciate you bringing attention to these unusual facts. I understand the Shawshank matter is about lumber and not live timber, but in valuation of standing timber related to replacement costs for restitution on criminal chemical on the criminal cases I have worked. The Army Corps of Engineers uses a per caliber per inch of diameter species per dollar amount. Whew, that's a mouthful. They factor the tree purchase, planting, and care for the years needed to reach the indicated size. When someone cuts down these trees on public land, most people are shocked at the cost of replacing a small grouping of trees. But I just wanted to improve the view of my lake, they say. <laughs> Again, thanks for your podcast and cheers from Texas. That's particularly interesting, you know, tangentially related to Shawshank because we're talking about live standing trees. But the fact that there is a system out there for measuring the value of these mature trees that have been, you know, quote, accidentally cut down. That's kind of fascinating. And it goes back to the story about the guy in Australia that has planted this forest and it's taken him 40 years to build this mature forest. You can imagine the time and effort that went into that, not to mention just, you know, the, the value now of those trees for ecological purposes, for shade purposes, for carbon sequestration, all that fun, you know, environmental hot topics. There's a lot of kind of intangible value but if you dig far enough, you might be able to turn it tangible if you start measuring things. So leave it to the uh, the CEC to come up with a way to do that. Thank you, Darren. That's a, a unique perspective on things. Finally, uh, Luke wrote in and he said, I very much enjoyed your series on urban lumber. On a few occasions, you raised the recommendation that woodworkers should consider having their logs slabbed in eight quarter to 10 quarter thickness, then go back through and lay out parts on those slabs for maximum flexibility on grain and color match. 
We call this the Cremona method because he invented it. I fully agree and I've twice taken this approach. However, at least with the mill I use, this choice comes at a premium. My full service mill saws, dries, and surfaces logs you bring to them. Dimensional lumber services are three to $5 a board foot, depending on how you have it cut. While slabs are a flat $10 a board foot, reflecting the extra care and attention those products require in drying and handling. The mill I use, that I use allows you to buy back only what you want, and the rest goes into their inventory, saving you the potential pain of having being forced to buy a whole log. But the added expense is still there. So while it might be ideal to have maximum flexibility in laying out parts, the slabbing method comes at a premium that some woodworkers may not be willing to spend. Excellent point, Luke. Excellent point. Um, and he's he's absolutely right. If, well, first of all, moving those slabs is just hard work. It usually requires machinery because they're just too blooming heavy for anybody to lift without hurting themselves. So the mill that can handle that tends to have a little bit more specialized inventory, therefore more overhead. Um, cutting them puts more wear and tear on the bandsaw blade, on the bandsaw itself. There is a lot more um, difficulty in, in kind of moving it around. Just getting the log set on the bed is one thing, but you'd be surprised how many little tweaks and adjustments need to happen between cuts. It's not quite set the thing up and then make a cut, advance the blade, you know, to an eight quarter or 10 quarter, make another cut. Um, in my experience at our own yard and doing some of this, there's all kinds of little things here and there that just adds up to time in between each cut that is uh, a lot more finicky than, you know, small sawing dimensional lumber. So it brings up a really, really good point. And, and one of those other things where like here again, in your own shop, let's Forget about drying. Say you're not getting them dried at all, but in your own shop, you've got to move those suckers around. And if they're difficult to move around, maybe you don't do it as often. So you're not expecting them. So maybe you've got a bug problem. And because you're not paying attention to it, you don't know what's going on. Or maybe there's a, a, a rot problem where it's not drying evenly. And because you can't really move those things around very easily, you don't notice that. Sawing into dimensional lumber certainly makes things a heck of a lot easier. For that matter, the mills usually are happier, especially in this case where the mill is allowing you, they're, they're buying back things. They're going to have more demand for that dimensional lumber. So there's a lot of business reasons why it's actually cheaper. Um, I would be curious to hear from those of you out there who are running mills if this holds true for you, if you are in fact charging more for slabbing than you are for dimensional lumber. If you're not, sorry, woodworkers, you should be um, because there are a lot of reasons there. If you are drying those boards, you absolutely need to be charging for that because it is so much harder to dry a thick slab than it is dimensional lumber. And I'm going to touch on this a little bit later and what I mean by harder to dry when we start talking uh, about uh, Cypress later on down the road. So let's move on to those emails. In fact, let's move on to the Cypress email that I got. This is from Tom. He says, as a general contractor with 20 years of experience serving the St. Paul, Minneapolis metro area, I am fortunate to serve a market with a fair number of older homes with existing storm doors and windows. I'm doing projects involving replacing existing wood storm doors and wood storm windows. As you could probably guess, white oak and sapelia are my go-to species for stain grade doors and windows but I'm struggling to come up with a good candidate for building paint-grade storm doors, storm windows, and window sashes. My understanding is that historically, vertical grain Douglas fir was the standard, 
but these days it's prohibitively expensive and when I can get it, it's challenging to mill. Clear pine would seem to be the modern alternative, but most of my local wholesalers are telling me they can't get clear pine in eight quarter thickness, which is necessary to produce a one and three quarter inch thick window sash. My glass client has suggested that I use poplar for the window sashes, but my experience is that poplar is not at all suited to applications that would potentially be exposed to weather. I used cypress a handful of times for other projects, and at first blush, it would seem to be a great candidate for paint grade windows. Or if I wanted a wood that would have a similar appearance to pine, the cypress I've worked with, with recently generally is tight grain, is mostly clear, seems to machine nicely, and my research tells me that it's well suited to applications that might see exposure to moisture. What I'm struggling to identify is, is cypress a sufficiently stable species to be used for style and rail construction that requires it to remain reasonably flat and true? At least one of my suppliers made an offhand comment about cypress being difficult to dry and or it would be prone to twisting over time. Do you have any direct experience working with cypress or have any guidance about how to interpret the properties on the wood database? Thank you uh, for checking the wood database. That's what I always tell people. Look at those tech specs. So good job, Tom. Gold star to you. Comparing Sapili to bald cypress would seem to have similar elastic modulus and shrinkus characteristics, but I'm not sure if I'm interpreting the data properly. So this is a, this is a big, big question. Lots going on here. Um, uh, let's kind of break this down. So um, there's a couple of things. And in most instances, difficulty to get something, availability of something, or prohibitive expense of something is usually driven by market trends. So let's let's kind of examine that. So when he says vertical grain Douglas fir was a standard, but these days it's prohibitively expensive. Um, uh, clear pine is a good alternative, but people can't get it in eight quarter. So Douglas fir, specifically VG, vertical grain Douglas fir, is used heavily in flooring applications, uh, siding applications, basically appearance grade applications. They want that beautiful VG look. Um, those applications are not applications that require eight quarter. Usually four quarter and thinner is all that's needed there. So the sawmills are not sawing it in eight quarter cuts. They, don't, they won't make any money on that because their demand is for the siding and flooring um, soffits, TNG ceilings, that's what the demand is for. So they can make more money by selling it in four quarter thicknesses. So there's just, it's not that um, you can't get it. It's just that no one's making it. So to make it, you have to essentially do a specific run, which ends up being more expensive. Um, it requires the wholesaler to buy the entire run, the entire kiln load, basically. So that drives costs up, which then filters down to you, the end user, making a lot more expensive. Clear pine would be the same type of thing. Pine is rarely used in eight quarter purposes. The other thing is with pine, air quotes around pine generally tends to be a bunch of different species all lumped together with all different working properties, different levels of clearness, different levels of grades. And it's just a heck of a lot easier to sell quote unquote pine in dimensional construction lumber. That's where the majority of it goes. The clear stuff is at a massive premium because you have to sort through a whole lot of material to get to it. So it is quite a bit of expensive and you can't get it because most people just don't carry it because there's not that much money in it. The demand for it is so low for the clear stuff that their turn rate ends up being too slow. So nobody really cares it. 
Poplar, we've had that episode on Poplar, and it's not necessarily a bad exterior wood, but it's also not a great exterior wood. There's a lot of other options that would go there, and I would agree that I don't think that it's really the best option. So all of these things, let's apply them to Cypress. Cypress is a fantastic exterior grade wood. It's very oily, quite a bit of resin. It's basically super rot resistant to the bugs, and because it's so oily, it pretty much repels water. So as an exterior wood, it's fantastic. The problem here again becomes the primary demand for cypress being the same as like VG Douglas fir. And VG cypress is really what people are specking for TNG ceilings, siding, interior, um, interior wall panels and things like that. To some extent decking, cypress is a bit soft. I wanna say it's about 550, 560 on the Jenka scale. Um, so, you know, for heavy, you know, treading durability type purposes, it may not be the best thing. Stability wise, it's not crazy unstable. It's also not crazy stable. It's right there in the middle. So, you know, you would be stacking your cards in your favor by using quarter sawn where it was important. Um, the relatively narrow parts of rail and style, specifically in sash, does mean that you can get away with a lot more. Again, wood movement being a percentage game, you know, a two inch wide board is going to move less than a six inch wide board. So, you know, I think you can probably defray some of the, the stability concerns about Cypress. You're a window and door maker. You understand grain direction. So I'm not going to go into that here. I think you get that part. Um, but I get what your suppliers are saying. The problem with Cypress is bald Cypress, like when you look up in the wood database, that will give you the most information. That's kind of the most common, but there are so many different species of Cypress. For, for that matter, Cypress is not even really a true Cypress. It's in the Cuprissa family, but it's actually more of a cedar than it is a Cypress. So you'll find a lot of different Cypresses that are actual true Cypresses and some that aren't true Cypresses. Cypresses? Cypri? I don't know what the plural of Cypress is. We're going to say Cypresses. Um, the the variation in those species means that when you're buying, quote, cypress, it might not actually be bald cypress. It could be several different species. There's also a wider geographic range. It's a southern grown species. You know, it's the state tree of Louisiana. I can tell you that much growing in the swamps and things like that. There's a lot of soil chemistry variation, a lot of rainfall variation across its distribution range that you're going to find a great deal of inconsistency in the grain. And with inconsistency in grain comes inconsistency in movement and inconsistency in drying. So a lot of suppliers will tell you, ah, I don't really like it because they had a bad experience with a couple of boards. And then another guy will say, I love it. I had a great experience with the board. And it's the exact same species. Maybe it was the same supplier. One guy just got lucky. The other guy got unlucky. Um, you can't really unless you're going and sorting board by board by board. And even then, like looking at the end grain, looking at the grain may not actually help you because the way the tree grows, often there's a lot of tension wood in there as well. There's all kinds of things that can vary based upon the, um, the water that it grew around. It's obviously mostly a swamp wood. Many times it's growing in the swamp. The next thing, and this is where it really comes down to, is the comment that it's difficult to dry. Cypress is not really that difficult to dry. What most people mean by difficult or tough to dry means that it has to be done slower. Because Cypress has so much oil in it, um, it is 
moisturized from the inside out. So it's kind of resistant to drying. Now, if you go through a normal kiln cycle of something like, you know, uh, Northeastern white pine, which is not nearly as um, oily or resinous, it will dry a heck of a lot faster and you can heat it up, heat the kiln up faster and go through the humidification process and the reverse case hardening process a heck of a lot faster. If you do the same kiln schedule on Cypress, you will cause all kinds of tension problems that will cause the Cypress to twist. Now, the other reason people say Cypress twists is back to the primary application, thinner TNG type ceilings. The thinner the board is, the less resistant it's going to be to warping, whether that be cupping, bowing or twisting. Um, in a vertical grain piece, how most of that warping is going to manifest is through twist. It won't cup as much due to the vertical grain nature. Um, it won't, it will bow some, but we expect that the twist, however, comes up due to drying it too quickly. This is why it's tough. It's not tough to dry. It's tough because it takes longer and it slows down your entire process. The demand for these products won't wait on a slow drying process. And you've got to fill that kiln entirely with cypress and dry it all as one. And it can take substantially longer, three to four times longer, just to heat it up, go through the, the humidification, dehumidification, excuse me, dehumidification, then rehumidification process, then cooling down can be three to four times longer than, you know, a, a more agreeable, easier to dry species. And that's ultimately what's causing this problem because of the dramatic geographic distribution of it, because of the dramatic variation due to that geographic distribution. You've got people that know this, specialize in Cypress and are taking their time in drying and they're producing amazing quality wood. And the people that have had great experience with Cypress are the people who are buying it from people who know how to dry it. Those that have had less than desirable experiences coming from people who dry a lot of lumber, but maybe don't dry a lot of Cypress and they don't understand how much slower it needs to be dried. So to answer your question, I think Cypress would be a great solution for you with a great big caveat. It really depends on who you're buying it from and how familiar they are with buying, uh, drying Cypress. And if you're not certain and the, the person you're buying from is not certain, then you are rolling the dice a bit um, to bring it in to your manufacturer to build windows and doors. Because windows and doors, you know, they're tough because they're moving properties like that. They have to be really, really precise and they've got to stay to those precise measurements over time. So what I actually recommend, sidestep the whole thing and embrace the modern tech. Um, modified woods are revolutionizing the joinery industry. Um, and specifically for a paint grade solution, uh, a product like Akoya seems to be taking over. Certainly it has taken over in Europe um, where the stuff really took hold, where it's manufactured. It's really grabbing hold of a lot of my customers and the actual, our, our millwork house for the fact that it is perfectly stable. It is ugly as sin though. It looks like pressure treated wood. So it is paint grain. It is definitely paint grain. Akoya is essentially radiata pine that has been chemically modified to be perfectly stable and rot resistant. So I've, I've known a lot of customers who've used it on like balusters and deck rails. Um, it is still radiata pine, so it can be quite soft. So not really good for decking, but for ancillary pieces on the deck, it can be fantastic and it doesn't move. As I said before, in the joinery world, doors, windows, it is being used all the time as a paint grade material. Even for stain grade stuff, some of the modified wood options will give you a really good solution. Now, obviously there's a catch, right? 
Akoya, let's look at the brand Akoya specifically compared to Cypress, you're probably going to double your cost when you go to Akoya. However, and, and, and please write back and tell me I'm out of my mind, but in dealing with a lot of door and window manufacturers that I deal with on the higher end of things, the cost of the wood itself isn't that big you know, it isn't that large of a percentage of the, of the overall cost of the sash and the door. Window and door making is extremely labor intensive. Um, the finish on it is very labor intensive. The cost of your door, in many instances, the wood itself can be less than 10% of the total cost because so much of it is labor, so much is, is, is time rather than materials. So in my mind, if you double your material cost, but you dramatically reduce or you dramatically improve the performance and frankly, the mill ability, the workability of the wood by not having it move around, um, you might actually speed up your production. You might actually end up seeing a cost savings. Maybe I could be wrong here, but you're going to produce a superior product that you don't have to worry about. You're not going to deal with claims and issues and repairs and things down the road, which as we all know is where the real money is lost when things don't go right, you know, two months later. So I would seriously look at some of those modified woods. And, and Akoya is the, the first one that comes to mind because it is ugly. <laughs> so it's a great wood to use for, for paint grade wood. The other thing here, most of the modern window and door ma makers I talk to now, they use a stave core construction. So they're using some other species, sometimes it is poplar, um, glued together, laminated up to form your core. And then they're using a thicker skin of an exterior grade wood over top, like a three eighths or quarter inch thick skin over top of that all using you know exterior grade glues or epoxies to glue the whole thing together you get a very very stable product that is weather resistant due to that outer shell of exterior grade wood and then of course the finish that you put over top of it um, and this applies even to thinner uh, 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 window sash type stuff uh, i actually just saw a project the other day at the millwork house it was this really intricate sash with all kinds of uh, mullion pieces and a Munton uh, lattice framework and everything. Even the Munton pieces were stave core construction. So uh, you get a really stable piece that way and it kind of sidesteps the whole issue. And you're not having to deal with the greater cost of, of a higher, you know, doubling your raw material, but you're dealing with greater time to glue up all that stave core to, you know, just saw those pieces. But you may find you've got a fair amount of offcut waste that if you put you know a, a guy or two or spend a day if you're a one-man shop spend a day out of your production week just gluing up stave core parts and like setting them on a shelf then you've got that near inventory that might help you when it comes to actually start working on that that window or door because you've got the stave core already in place that would be my recommendation stave core or a modified wood solution for you um sorry cypress i still think cypress would work but you know, it's 2023, we can't ignore these things anymore. Uh, modified woods are here to stay and they're kind of changing things, especially in the joinery world. Moving on, uh, John sent an email and to full disclosure, I stole this email from the Wood Talk um, <laughs> inbox. So uh, sorry, John, if you really wanted to hear this on Wood Talk, neener neener, it's on Lumber Update now. So, um, but I say that because uh, Mark uh, on, on Wood Talk was mentioning how uh, people were talking about the treatment of wooden spoons. So John wrote in and said, uh, I've been a professional chef for 20 plus years. Early in my career, I rode at a big hotel and most of us had a lot of our own tools beyond knives and the usual. I kept breaking wooden spoons and a buddy told me to put them in the deep fryer until they stopped bubbling. I've never had another spoon break since doing this. 
You have to occasionally fry it again, but the wood, the wooden, the wood seems to get a great cure for lack of a better word. I'm sure you've seen similar results with any wood frequently exposed to heat and oil. Um, my question is, could you quote, cure a cutting board or other wooden object in hot oil, or even just expose it to heat, maybe in an oven for a period of time with oil on it? Or would this cause the glue to break down? A spoon, a spoon might be the exception because it is a solid piece. So uh, yeah, John, I just felt like this was perfect for the, the lumber update here. So um, let's talk scientifically about what's going on here. And since I just talked about modified woods, there are some modified wood products that are essentially doing what you're talking about. They're dropping them in a deep fryer. They are oil modifying using a, a heat, a tor, well, torrefaction, a torrefication heat treatment through oil. Um, that is a specific type of heat treatment kiln or thermal modified kiln that uses oil. So obviously you're heating the wood up, the wood itself becomes more pliable, you excite everything, all of the air molecules, everything gets excited, the wood starts, to, excuse me, the water in the wood starts to boil off, the hydroxide compounds start to break down, you infuse oil, you inject oil into that mixture, and the oil, because it repels water, um, also with a little bit of pressure, could, um, not could, it replaces, it pushes the water out, and it replaces the water with the oil. In a deep fat fryer, what I imagine is just the excitation of the fryer and the bubbling and all that stuff. The bubbling is coming in the spoon is the, the water and the air being driven out of the spoon and being replaced with oil. So when you pull it out, and the heat, of course, just makes everything a little bit more pliable. It, As I said, it, it gets those molecules bouncing around and moving around because it's excited them so much that... Uh, agitation, if you will, of the molecules bumping into one another kind of furthers the penetration of the oil into the wood. When it stops bubbling, the air is gone and you've replaced all that dead air with oil. So now you've essentially moisturized the wood from the inside out, producing a more pliable product that's not going to dry out and fracture and break. So like turning green wood versus turning kiln dried wood, you know, you get dust and shavings with dried kiln dried wood. Green wood, you get these long curls. You can like peel an apple in one slice. That's what's happening with your, your, your spoons. They are essentially moisturized from the inside out. Now, at the same time, that heat, that extreme heat will harden the cell walls a little bit. We've talked about this with thermal modified wood. It's the same process, which is why there are thermal modification kilns that use oil. So you are getting a more stable wood that's less prone to moving, that's less prone to cracking, then you just end up with a, a, a more durable product in the long run. So that's the science. That's what's happening there. So let's add a glued up product. Well, the first thing is you've got to choose the right glue. Type on two, ain't going to cut it. Type on three, maybe. I'm not a chemist here. It may or may not cut it. Um, what you need to look for is a WPF, a water boil proof glue. This is the glue that's used in marine grade plywood. If you get a WPF glue, this wood, this is literally tested by gluing boards together, sticking in boiling water for like 48 hours, 72 hours, now I can't remember the amount, and does the plywood delaminate? You know, does the glue give up? And if it doesn't, it meets the WPF to be uh, a marine glue or water boil-proof glue. So you need that to start with. Second of all, you sticking in an oven with just oil on it, I don't know would work. Um, without the the excitation without the actual dousing submergence of oil, um, like you would in, in, a, in a deep fat fryer, 
you're not really forcing the air out of it. You know, the wood would actually just kind of bake on top um, and you might end up with kind of a sticky mess if you did that. There's really nothing driving it in. You know, if you, if you took um, uh, something that's full of air and plunged it underwater, it will bubble as the air tries to rise and tries to escape. Without submerging it in oil, I don't know that you're going to get that type of um, action going on. At the same time, the dry heat of an oven is going to tear apart that wood. Um, kiln drying cannot be done without moisture. Solar kilns produce moisture because they trap the moisture inside and as it cools down, it kind of re-moisturizes the wood as it condensates back onto the wood. Dehumidification kilns rely upon steam. You constantly have, uh, you, you control the checking, you control the drying by reducing and adding steam and then adding steam back in to kind of moisturize it to reverse the case hardening. You cannot kiln dry without moisture. If you stick it in an oven, there's no moisture in there and the oil is not providing the moisture. So I don't think that would work. Now, if you could take a cutting board and drop it into a deep fat fryer like your spoon, as long as the glue is good to go and the glue is not going to give up under that stress, it might actually work. I don't see why it wouldn't behave the same as a solid piece because the glue is not going to fail. Um, certainly you need a big old deep fat fryer to do that, but you're a professional chef. You've probably got those things that can flash fly a Buffalo in three seconds, like Mo Sizlak bought when he redid uh, uh, his his bar into Mo's family feedback yeah, for Simpsons fans here. You know, you got that big old industrial deep fat fryer that maybe, you know, maybe you could dunk a cutting board in there. I definitely wouldn't do it in the oven with oil on it. Uh, I think you would end up with more burning, <laughs> maybe a fire hazard more than anything else if you tried to do that. But understanding the science might actually help you figure out a way to make that work. Interesting question. Thanks, John. And uh, again, sorry if you wanted Mark or Matt to answer this. Oops. <laughs> All right, let's move on to, I've got two questions here related to really old wood. Um, uh, first is a fun question uh, David sent in uh, on Instagram. He was watching Moana, the Disney movie with his daughter. And there's a scene where she goes into this underground cavern where there's a bunch of boats that have supposedly been stored there for thousands of years. These boats are up on logs, kept off the ground. Um, they're in a, in a cave behind a waterfall. David asks, would these boats still be seaworthy after a thousand years? Like, would the wood, would the wood stand up after a thousand years? Um, and then Anthony sent me a link to a Facebook post about the oldest door in the UK that's in Westminster Abbey. Um, it's a dated through dendrochronology to be a 950 year old door. Um, and Anthony asks, could a modern woodworker build the door that lasts that long? So one of this is kind of a construction question. One is more of a wood question, but I do think they're related to one another. And in some ways, Westminster Abbey and this fictional uh, behind the waterfall cave from Moana are somewhat similar. So the easy answer for David about the boats is yes, I think they would be seaworthy because what we're talking about is in a cave behind a waterfall, it's actually climate controlled. It's a very moist environment, but because it's in a cave, you're going to have very constant temperatures. Um, fun fact, I was a tour guide in a cave, a place called Cave of the Winds in Colorado Springs uh, in high school for a couple of years. And one of the things, one of the little fun touristy facts we always gave is it's always 52 degrees Fahrenheit in the cave. Caves actually, um, 
maintain a pretty constant temperature because they're quite well insulated most of the time. So this would be a cool, very wet atmosphere where these boats stayed all the time. Now, assuming the boats were built by somebody who knew what they were talking about and they used a wood appropriate for boat building and used good boat building construction techniques, um, I would see no reason why they wouldn't be because they didn't really rely upon glues and fasteners and things like that a thousand years ago. It was wood joinery, wood construction using good quality wood. Um, they have actually been almost preserved in this climate controlled environment for a thousand years. Um, I don't think you're going to see any rot because it's behind a waterfall and it's a moist, damp environment because of the fact that it's not really changing very much. So wood begins to break down when you've got dramatic changes. You know, the expansion and contraction that's constantly happening, like a road during freeze and thaw cycles. That's where we get potholes. Um, if there's not a lot of change, there's not a lot of movement going on there. Things end up being quite constant. If moss were to grow on it, the moss might actually end up protecting it. You might see a little bit of fungal decay. But again, if you've chosen the right wood for boat building, you're probably not going to run into a lot of that. The wood itself is going to be oily enough to repel a lot of that stuff. It's going to be rot resistant enough, aka taste bad for the bugs, that it's not really going to rot. Also, with that cave environment, the, the fungi and the bugs and things are fewer on the ground that, you know, the wood eating insects don't thrive in that environment. So they pretty much leave it alone. Now, I'm sure there's an entomologist out there that's listening to this going, I know of an insect that thrives quite well in caves. That's great. <laughs> there's always going to be, you know, an exception to the rule. But I think in this fictional case from Moana, I see no reason why it wouldn't, those boats wouldn't still float, wouldn't still be seaworthy. So this brings us to Westminster Abbey. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I, last time I was in Westminster Abbey, I remember like the, the general cattle call tour, like you walk by this door and they like make mention of the fact that there, here's a door. But at the time, I don't think the time I was there, last time I was in Westminster Abbey, I think it was 1988. Um, they, they didn't, I don't think they, well, dendrochronology, I don't think was even a science or at least one that was perfected enough. So no one really knew the true date. They just said, look, there's a really old door. Uh, it's only recently that they've actually been able to, to, actually date it specifically to 950 years. Long story short, it's in a stone wall off the beaten path in a very climate controlled environment. While it's not in a cave, it's surrounded by stone, doesn't get a lot of exposure to the elements, and you'll find that the temperature and humidity levels are going to be quite constant in the not only the the, the big room that it um, that the door closes off, but also the hallway leading up to the door, quite constant. The other thing about this door that's made it last so well for 950 years, it's it's very simple construction. It's essentially a board and iron batten. They used a couple of planks, tied them all together with iron battens that went across, that stretched across horizontally. So I think the key to Anthony's question is, could a modern woodworker build the door that would last that long? I do question some of the fancier modern doors that use a lot of glue. I talked about stave core construction before. Use a lot of glue, but also use a lot of loose sticking as compared to integral cope and stick joinery. Um, also a lot of loose tenon joinery. 
there's a lot more moving parts in a modern door that have the potential for water, for stuff to get in and around and behind and cause more things to move that could potentially break apart over 900 years. Again, back to that pothole forming freeze and thaw cycle on a road. If, however, you took six boards, stacked them side by side, maybe you TNG'd them together, and then you ran either a wooden batten or an iron batten across it, there's really not a lot of moving parts there. There's expansion and contraction across the width of those boards, but that's it. You don't have that ovalo loose sticking thrown in to hold a panel in place. You don't have a floating panel that's expanding and contracting independent of the frame and panel door. And we look at frame and panel as like, you know, the pinnacle of controlling wood movement, but it is still a lot of moving parts. It's still a more complex construction where you've got tongues seating into grooves and loose sticking holding panels in place. You've got varying thicknesses and raised panels that cause variable wood movement amounts. There's all kinds of different things in there. Now, I do think a well-constructed, using a good species for like an exterior door, let's just pick on white oak, um, that's well-built, that's using mortise intended construction, that's tied together nicely, that's using modern glues, I really don't know why it shouldn't last a couple hundred years. But I definitely think stacking the cards in your favor by doing integral cope and stick joinery, um, integral mortise and tenons, um, and even eschewing the frame and panel altogether and building like board and batten doors, it's just simpler and therefore it's gonna last longer. Fact of the matter is, modern construction and modern costs and trying to get things in and out of a shop as quickly as possible and trying to be very conscious of, of uh, how much time and, and money is going into that door, loose sticking has become the way that doors are built in most cases now. Stave core construction is how doors tend to be built right now. Um, and the market just won't tolerate uh, a simple board and back construction, nor will they tolerate some of the more time consuming methods that will last a heck of a lot longer. And let's be clear, folks, a 950 year old door in Westminster Abbey, that may be the oldest door in the United Kingdom. That is nothing compared to some of the doors in the rest of the world. You look at some of the doors in Japanese temples that are thousands of years old. I have seen doors in Greece that um, again, no dendrochronology, but the building and, and all historical accounts, the door could bait, date back to 1500 BC. So now we're talking again, 3,500 years. Um, so yeah, constant climate control type environments or tropical areas or Mediterranean areas that have pretty much even, you know, don't have a lot of seasons, have even moisture and temperature levels throughout the year, they're gonna last a heck of a lot longer. So hopefully this answers both David's Moana question and Anthony's Westminster Abbey question. Fascinating stuff, you know, with the right environment, it's amazing how long wood will last. Wow, wide variety of topics here, lots of geeky stuff as usual. Thanks guys, I really love the questions, keep them coming. My inbox is full, my contact form is really full. I, I, I will get to the questions, I promise, but keep sending them in. I love the variety that we're getting here. It's definitely given the show uh, its own character <laughs> these days that I really appreciate. So keep it up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in and go buy some wood. <laughs>